Alrighty, alrighty. Um, I should have said thank the Lord for last week, uh, wonderful Easter season, and uh, I thought the Passover Seder on Good Friday was really enjoyable, and services on Sunday were, it's just, every pastor, you know, I'll tell you, it's a difficult week, the week of Easter. I know, pray a little fiddle. Um, can you back me down just a little, Oscar? We, can, we still got Sunday morning volume with, I don't know how many people are in here, 150, 200 people in here. There you go. You guys still hear me okay? All right. <clears throat> thank you. I also want to thank the Lord for, we had, I, usually Satan hits me pretty hard on Sunday nights, but I was like, what you, I'm not up there, what you got, you know, Um, because it's just, I I know, doesn't Satan come after you? He comes after me. Any pastor will tell you, Sunday night is a difficult night, and usually by Monday, most pastors are ready to turn in their resignation. Um, uh, Early in my ministry, I said, I don't do that, but that was early in my ministry. (laughs) Um, But it was just a real blessing. I I enjoyed the service personally, uh, and miracle happened that day. I I told the guys that I was going to keep the service at its normal length, and we had eight specials and all this music, which meant I had to just keep my mouth shut, and by some miracle, you guys don't care, huh? Okay. Next year, I'll preach an hour over, and it'll be one o'clock, and then every every woman in the church will be like, I had Easter dinner on. Um, So... And every man will be going, I wanted to eat Easter dinner, and you kept preaching. No, I try to honor people's time. You know, I know people say, oh, you shouldn't care. No, I, I, I just think that disrespects people's time. But I just want to thank those great services on Sunday. And then uh, pastors, uh, one of our worst uh, Sundays is the Sunday after Easter and July 4th weekend. Those tend to be like the real low points for pastors because everybody just goes, you know. Um, but at any rate, it was great. And... Um, I, I'm ready for that moment to come, and we are living in dangerous days. We just are, and I, wow, I don't know. You know, I'm afraid some American Christians think God has some responsibility to America, you know. No, he doesn't, uh, especially how we've disrespected him, but just these are dangerous days, and uh, yet it's for Christians, you know, it's exciting days, right? You know, get to be here, hopefully, Lord, at the end, you know. Uh, so, be all good. All right, we're going to be in our Life of Messiah study tonight in uh, John chapter number three. If you have your Bible tonight, John chapter number three. Uh, if you have your Harmony of the Gospels, this, the Ariel edition, we're in paragraph 34. Uh, Arnold does paragraph 34 in about 12 minutes. I'm on part three, so I'm on about, you know, what, two and a half hours, (laughs) but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, Arnold skips over a lot of stuff like what we're going to cover tonight. He, he doesn't say much about it at all, a little bit, but maybe a sentence or two. And, and he has to, I'm not, that's not a criticism. I mean, you know, it's already a long, if you've listened to all of life Messiah one time, it's a long, uh, deal, but, um, but I enjoy that when you do, verse by verse through, as we are doing in Life of Christ, you're using all four Gospels. We're going to cover it all. And it makes you go over some passages that oftentimes we don't really stop and consider. 
And I would submit to you tonight that John chapter 3 being, you know, arguably the greatest chapter in the Bible, arguably, and obviously they're all great, they're all inspired, so I hate to comparative, but the, the preeminence of John chapter 3 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is just, I, I do not have adequate words to say the power it's had in the lives of people throughout history, but uh, many times these verses that we're going to cover tonight are just, I don't know, I'll tell you my own self, they're ones we read over. And I hope tonight will uh, be an encouragement to you as we spend a little more time considering what they have to say. Uh, as I mentioned, John the Baptist here, we're back into John the Baptist's life and his disciples, John's disciples, who, G- who John is trying to point to Jesus and is pointing to Jesus, but they got jealous about Jesus and Jesus' disciples, and so John is responding to that, and we're going to pick things up tonight after that famous verse in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease, and we move on to verse 31, and I will uh, tonight begin by saying that there is debate about verses 31 to 36, this last section of John chapter 3, there's some debate among, you know, good Bible theologians, people I uh, like to read, whether John the Baptist is still the one doing the speaking here or whether the Apostle John, the writer of the gospel, is now uh, commentating on this, this passage of scripture as he writes this letter. Um, it's hard to tell the difference because if you know the Apostle John liked to make things light or darkness and John hits things very hard and he carries that that persona into his epistles in 1 John. There's not a lot of wiggle room in 1 John. Same deal here. But John the Baptist had a very similar, you know, John the Baptist didn't mince words. So the bottom line is uh, the truth that comes out of this, I think both of them would have been in agreement, were in agreement on what he's trying to say and there's some great truth here. All right? So let's pick things up in verse 31. The Bible goes on to say, um, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthy and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And so we pick things up here, and I personally think John the Baptist is probably still continuing to speak here, but either way, um, he tells them and reminds these disciples that Jesus came from above, but that he came from the earth. You know, basically, it's, it's simple point here. John is saying, like every other man, I am born of this world, but Jesus came from heaven, and he wasn't born of this world. He didn't come originate here. He's always been. That, that he is above all, and this strong statement here, that, that Jesus is the sovereign one, that he is the king of kings and, and the Lord of lords, and he didn't come like John the Baptist and the apostle John. He's not earthy. And you know, I don't know about you, but in my life, the struggle I face is oftentimes I do all my evaluation from an earthy perspective. And um, even as a believer, it gets you in a lot of trouble when you try to evaluate everything that's happening in your life and the why, when we only in our humanness have this earthy perspective. And, you know, versus Jesus came out of eternity a um, little bit different perspective there, wouldn't you say? And he is above all, and we certainly are not. And if, if you doubt that, life, you haven't lived very long because life has a way of reminding us that it's bigger than we are. Now, verse 32 goes on and says, And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. <clears throat> so Jesus comes from heaven, he's above all, and he's just here telling us, what he's always known and seen from an eternal standpoint. And Jesus is this truth. The prophets, in distinction, were given truth. Jesus is coming here telling us what he already knew. 
And so there's a, there's a big difference. Now, in this verse, I, I kind of want to draw your attention in, in these next couple of verses, some interesting things that I, I hadn't thought about in a long time or maybe ever that I found personally interesting. But notice he says that what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. Jesus came from heaven. He's bearing witness about who he is and what he's there to do. And notice, and no man receiveth this testimony. And it says, no man, what does no man mean? You know, Pastor Danny's already laughing. So I can't get away with trick questions when Pastor Danny laughs. That should be your cue. If you see him laughing over there, don't take the bait, you know. Um, you know, that, that's a strong statement. No man receiveth this testimony. Is that true? No one, see, I told him it's a trick question. Now, nobody wants to say anything. Um, you know, what does it mean? Doesn't when it says no man, doesn't it mean no man? <sighs> yes, no? What do you think? If you're watching online, maybe you can help. Type something in there. The people here tonight had baked potatoes and stuff, and they're just potatoed out. I, um, they're in a potato, vegetative, potato, I don't know. They're, 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 they're scared to answer, I guess. Um, it's that, because you're going, well, not everybody rejected his witness. That, you know, doesn't sound a little bit strong. I mean, a um, couple things. First, I would say, remember that all language has got to be not only determined in its context, but also in its syntax. You know, in, in our language, you know, if you were to go to your house and the kids are running around and whatever, and the kid, you know, you, let's say you have four kids, and some of you in here have four kids, you know, and things are, and you, you come in the house, you say, y'all are being crazy. Does that mean all the kids are being crazy? Yeah, it is. But you know, when, as soon as you say that, there's the one that's up in their bedroom with their book, their study book out, preparing for tomorrow's quiz. But you say y'all, and we understand the euphemism, the idiom of, of what it is here. Um, but is there times where we can clearly understand an, an, an all statement means all? You know, you, you guys know, we believe that you got to interpret the Bible as literal as possible. And Pastor Danny and I sometimes with even well-intentioned Christians, even some occasionally around here, um, you know, you can carry this literal thing. We are literal, and I'm unapologetically a literal, I believe you got to take the Bibles as literally written, but I know Pastor Danny, one of his favorite ones is out of Psalm somewhere where the Bible says that the heavens is his footstool. What's his footstool? The earth is his footstool. Well, my absolutist literalist, you know, let me go out here and see if I can see a big peg leg there rising over the horizon. You know, is the earth a, you know, no, we understand it's a figurative meaning there. And so you have to read the Bible literally in the genre in how it is being presented. And it's really not that difficult. But when everything else fails, we always default to a literal interpretation if that needs to be the case. But um, for example, I know my Calvinist friends don't like the word pos in the Greek. It means all. And you find when it's used that it's generally put there because the writer in the Greek is trying to make the point all. Now, they like to put wiggle room in there, but they're really, to me, there is none. But how about this verse? Most of you can quote this one, right? What does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned. Pretty absolutist there, don't you think? How do you know that? You say, well, you met my wife. <laughs> yes, you sinned. She's probably perfect. Um, we, we, we understand from our life experience and everything around us tells us we're all sinners and in, in the context of what John 3 is about in verse number 10 earlier, he said there is none righteous, no, not one, right? 
When you get down to verse number 23, it's not a great leap of intellectual uh, deduction to figure out when he says, for all have sinned, he's using it in an absolute statement. Now, let me bring you back here to John chapter 3. You say, well, what's going on here when, when the writer writes here that, um, that uh, uh, he, what he has seen, he heard, and he testifieth that no man received his testimony? Well, what, what does that mean? How would you, if, some, if a skeptic saying, well, what do you mean? We know somebody did or the Bible wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have Christians today. How would you, how would you explain that? Anybody? No? No. All right, one thing you can certainly, I think, make that he's speaking in a general sense here, that in generally speaking, has mankind as mankind, have we received God's testimony or have we rejected it? rejected it. I think that's a very fair understanding. But I would also point, remember the issue at hand here, Jesus has just witnessed Nicodemus about how to gain eternal life through simple faith. And then there's this problem with John Baptist's disciples who are jealous over that. And, and John's reminding them that he was the forerunner and Jesus is the Messiah. And in him, in him is life. And in our Life of Messiah study so far, Jesus is early in his ministry. And John the Baptist and Jesus, we're going to find as we go through this, go through very similar things. Like the way Arnold says it is, what happens to the forerunner happens to the Messiah. He says that a lot throughout, and he's, and he's right. You remember when John Baptist had his ministry and all the crowds were coming and there was a big to-do about it and he's preaching about the Messiah and I showed you how that when the, when the Pharisees came down, it's a, it fits perfectly with first century Judaism where there were so many people claiming to be Messiah that the Pharisees came up with a way for, to evaluate a, a claim of messianic truth and they would send a delegation out and that's why the first time, you know, they would not ask any questions, they just observe and then if they found it had some kind of merit, they'd come back and then they would ask questions and you see this in John Baptist and we're going to see it in the life of Jesus the ministry. But remember when the, when the Jerusalem council from the Pharisees came down to evaluate John Baptist, how receptive were they to Jesus or to John Baptist's message? None. Remember he called them the pit of vipers and John Baptist ripped them a new one? They, they rejected. And to this point in the narrative, there was, as far as we know, at least Scripture doesn't record at this point, Nicodemus being the first one that's shown an interest. And like I said, I personally believe Nicodemus had recently been saved. But in generalities, the religious leaders had already pretty much said, we are rejecting the testimony of you and we're rejecting the testimony of Jesus. All of them. And so I think that's what he probably has in mind here is that no man received his testimony. Here he came under the Jewish people, came under the Jewish leadership, and they said, nah, we, we, we believe you're, ultimately they're going to claim that he's demon-possessed. Now, it's, it's interesting. We move on in the story, and just as I mentioned to you earlier about John, Romans 3, we'll see here about receiving his testimony. Um, we can see in the context uh, that it answers it. Verse 33, he that hath received his testimony... So apparently somebody can receive his testimony because right there in your in the context and oftentimes Pastor Daniel I'll teach people listen when you're when you're you get on one verse of scripture you know don't just you, you better read at least the verse before and the verse after about half the time that alone will solve the problem if you'll put it in a little just an intermediate context but here we find he that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true 
Now, of all the verses I studied for this week, this is the one that kind of got me to stop, that I'd really never really considered before, and it was fascinating to me. Um, Now, maybe you won't be fascinated by it, but notice in verse 33 when he says that he that hath received his testimony. So he shifts from the rejectors, the religious leadership, to those who were the receivers, which tended to be the poor people, the lessers, you know, and the regular people were coming to John Baptist and were following Jesus as John Baptist pointed him out as the Messiah. But what fascinated me is the end of that verse, it says, the person that received the testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. That set to his seal. That, 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 that interested me. What, you know, so I did a little work on that, you know, just looking at the, what, what the word was there. And it, 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 it's a strong word that is used several times and it's fairly consistent in its usage about basically that you're certifying. You know, I ever had, you know, like jewelry, for example. You take jewelry in and, you know, if you're like me, I, I, I like jewelry. In another life, maybe I'd have been a jeweler. It just fascinates me. And whenever we go on the cruise, they play this game where you go in there and it's just try to to suck you into their shops so you'll buy stuff, you know, so understand. But when they offer something free, sometimes I'll play the game just to try to get something free. And they have, they have a case and they've got three or four different gems in there and one of them is real and the rest of them are all imitation. And if you can guess the real one, all the people who get that right answer then are put into a drawing and one of you will receive that actual gem. And it's, you know, it's generally a reasonably valuable one. And it is amazing to try to figure out which one is synthetic and which one is the real deal. But if you have jewelry, you go to a jeweler and you want someone who knows to certify that this jewelry is really a diamond. And so that word carries that idea. Um, And in Scripture, it, it has that idea of, like in Ephesians 1, about we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Same basic Greek word there. Um, that, that when we get saved, that, that God sets his seal on us and we're sealed eternally. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? So when I thought about that, I understand that God sets his seal and says, you're sealed and I'm thankful that my salvation is guaranteed because of the word of God, not because of Ken's behavior. And it's a fascinating truth. But here, the apostle writer or John Baptist is, is telling us that when we receive the testimony, we are setting our seal that God is true. Do you find that to be a humbling thing to recognize God is recognizing your right to set your seal on whether you believe it or not? I thought, I don't, am I really worthy at all to, and then I thought to myself, you know, as I meditated and prayed, and then I started reading guys who are smarter than me about this, and um, it is interesting that God looks at each of us as individual beings and he's created us you know in his image and as you know i think the crowning jewel of how god created us is he gave us legitimate free will and if you will 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 he gives you the opportunity to put your seal on what you want to choose to believe or not believe with the free will he's given you now i don't know this is for my theologians but some of the, i know some that watch us online that love to split some of these hairs and think about these things I'll throw one of these out here to you and maybe start a big argument I don't know but um, isn't conversion occur when we decide to believe the witness of Jesus 
and agree with God and set our seal in agreement with the testimony of Christ. Now, I don't want to say that you say, you're saying work salvation. No, I'm saying that when we make that act of choosing to believe. In other words, when you get saved, there needs to be an actual time, a moment of legitimate belief. And unless a person has set their seal on the testimony of Jesus Christ, are they ever, are they going to heaven? Now, then let the argument begin. That's kind of what I wrestled with this week. I, 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 I would tell you that I was thinking about seals and recently with the passing of a good friend and having to get reimmersed in the legalese of, of um, you know, wills and law and stuff like that. And thankful the Lord sent me a, somebody who knew more about law than I did, you know, to help me out. Um, but some of the papers that we had to look at, there were, you know, my, my friend who's passed away had written some things, but one of them he had notarized. And when they go notarize them, and whenever I would meet with my legal friend, they have these little, looks like a pair of pliers, except it's got the little round disc on it, and you put that seal on there, and it just totally transforms that paper. It makes it really look official looking. I thought, I just need, I don't need a law degree. I just need one of those little punch paper things. I just go around going, hey, this is good. Take it down to the judge. You know, I got it sealed. Um, but I thought, you know, how hard would it be to make the paper go back to being perfectly smooth? Yeah, I think you'd probably destroy it before you could do that. Yeah, try and iron it. That's what I thought. I don't, you know, maybe that's a test. Go out there and see if you can unseal. Unse- I don't know. All I know is, I believe the Bible teaches that when a person comes to faith in Christ, they agree with the witness, the conviction the Holy Spirit of God brings upon us that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior um, and that we have given this, this wonderful ability. And by the way, in this verse, another thing I found interesting, when it says, hath set his seal, it, that takes what? Set his seal, set to his seal, four words in the English. In the Greek, it's just one word. And it's actually a verb. So it's something that, you know, it's present active indicative right there. You agree to, I'm sealing this. Seal the deal. And at some point, I would submit that a person can have all the intellectual knowledge about what, you know, this, that, and the other, but there needs to be a time where we seal the deal and we choose Christ as, as our personal Savior. Now, I don't know, maybe all that's a bunch of heresy and get ripped up. Pastor Danny can do a, a, a video on it and get, get all the, the nerdy theologian people up, all up doing their things. But I just found it fascinating. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm thankful that God, as Pastor Danny, has got a really great video coming out tomorrow. I don't know if I can link it right here, right here, right here, right here, but... Um, Really exciting announcement. I'm really excited about it. Uh, something in our, our apologetics ministry that's coming out tomorrow. And there's a you deal with this very issue about total depravity. And um, really good. All right. I confused you enough, right? You say you didn't give us all the answers. No, I don't know all the answers. If, if, you know, you came to the wrong place. You think that's what it is. But give you something to chew on, if nothing else. Consider verse 33 this week about we've received it. And God allows us to set, when we do receive that testimony, we are setting our seal that God is true. Verse 34, for whom God hath sent um, speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. So here's another powerful statement. He, he, he says that when God sent Jesus from heaven that he literally speaks the word of God. Everything he said is the word of God. That's why we have red letters in our Bible, which also is a little bit confusing, isn't it? Because all scripture is inspired. Um, you know, but um, um, 
when Jesus was there, he literally was God speaking. And again, these are really powerful statements that usually we just read over as we're reading them through John chapter 3. But, you know, everything Jesus said, God speaking. Wow. I'm fortunate in my life if I can just have some spirit-filled words a few times a day. Most of the time when we speak, we're not quite speaking so heavenly, are we? Many times. But I also found interesting, another, we're going to get on another rabbit trail here. See, I got a couple of them tonight because lesser known verses of scriptures. But notice it says in this verse that God has sent him and he speaks the words of God for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. Now, if you have a King James version, you're going to notice that unto him is in italics. That means it was added there by the translators. And personally, I would agree with them putting that there because in the Greek tense, it is referring from the original language. We can figure out that the writer is referring back to Jesus himself, that the spirit, that God giveth not the spirit by measure. Some versions just stop it right there. Um, and I think that, that misses kind of the, what this passage is about. No, God... Well, matter of fact, that's what leads to my question. Are we given today in the New Testament era of grace, are we given the Spirit without measure? Question. Pastor Danny's trying not to laugh. Um, are we given the Spirit without measure? You guys don't know what to say about this, do you? You're having the same conundrum I was having this week when I was studying this. Another, so you can't ask us more than one trick question per session. Okay, um, trying to give you another one. Are we given the Spirit without measure? When you got saved, did you get partial Holy Spirit or did you get all Holy Spirit? Right, we got, I, they're, they're afraid to answer, but you know, I, I, you know I've, I've, maybe I'm wrong in my theology. Sometimes I'll preach, you know, when you got saved, you got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. The question is how much of the Holy Spirit how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? You know, um, so aren't we given the Holy Spirit then without measure? <laughs> yeah, you're in it with me now. Yeah, I, I, my, this is what happens in the middle of the night when Pastor Ken's studying. I'm going, my brain's going, what? Overload, what do you mean? Um, you know, given without measure. And I think that's, why, again, why it's important that John here is specifically talking about the Jesus in, in contrast, but as I think I heard Michael Bryant just mention, what does it say in Ephesians chapter 5? And be not drunk with wine where is excess, but, but be filled with the Spirit. And it's imperative, it's a command. You know, we're baptized into the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ once, into Christ once, but we understand that the fillings can come because our flesh gets the better of us and sometimes moves into our resonant areas more than it should and we need to be reminded and put God back in the middle and, you know, get a revival or just, you know, that's what church is about and why we spend time considering God as an area of my life, you know, because I've kind of run the spirit out and, you know, so if we're being commanded to be filled, it kind of would, by definition, saying it sometimes we don't have all of it, Right? So you, you see where this can be theologically challenging, why you have to separate the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the day-by-day -day living of the Holy Spirit. But back to John chapter 3, what the writer is saying here, though, is he's saying that Jesus Christ being God and everything he says is God because Jesus himself had the complete full measure of the Spirit in baptism and filling. I guess we could argue that we have it in the fullness of the Spirit in the baptizing, but in the filling, we live in this flesh, and sometimes we don't live quite 
spirit-filled as we ought. The other thing that people bring, remember in John, or not John, in Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesied about the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11, um, and there shall come forth, this verse number one of Isaiah chapter 11, and there shall come forth a, a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, reprove with equity the, uh, for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked." And the rabbinic writers had talked about when the Messiah comes, according to Isaiah's prophecy, that the Messiah would be the fulfillment of the seven, seven uh, description of the, the full spirit. And they use Isaiah 11 there with those seven descriptions of that. And many people think, and I would agree, that what the writer's referring to here is that when Jesus came, he speaks the word of God, the words of God, and he also was the full embodiment of the prophecy of Isaiah that he fully, with full measure, lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, I would also submit to here we see in the New Testament a continuation of the triune God. You know, God the Father... God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That God the Father is there in heaven, the Son comes here, but he is the speaking of the equal with God the Father and also is the embodiment of God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, yet three separate beings. It's kind of fascinating. Now, today, while maybe I, this one's not so much a trick question, all right? I know it's getting, I'm almost done, but it's not a trick question. Is every believer given the same amount of spiritual gifts? No. So you can make the argument that God's not fair. Um, maybe where you could, you could teach his Bible truth one year at Christmas is if you've got several children, buy them different amounts of gifts and teach them to see how, see how big they're into spirituality. That's Christmas morning. When, um, no, we, we understand that God gives gifts as he desires and some people have more than one gift. Some people are really gifted and uh, really gifted, have more gifts than others. But why, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, why were we as believers given spiritual gifts? What is the purpose of spiritual gifts? According to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. All right, I think I heard a couple of you think I say it, but I'm going to give Bill. I heard you probably most clearly. I don't know, maybe this ear works better. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's pretty clear. He says it more than one time, that the gifts were giving to the edification of the body. What is the body? The church. Now, I know someone says, well, it's the universal church. No, he, that's not really what he has in mind there in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's re writing to this church that had a lot of problems with spiritual giftedness and so much of modern charismaticism today to me has the same problem where they've taken things crazy. But we are given spiritual gifts to edify the body of Christ, to help the church accomplish its mission. I don't know how many believers actually ever stop and consider that. Now, it's sometimes difficult, and guys write books on this, and sometimes Christians come ask me, and I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot here tonight, but I'm trying to keep you awake. Um, but there's a couple different passages in the scriptures that talk about spiritual gifts that list, there's actually a couple different lists, and so there's how many spiritual gifts are there. There's, yeah, there's more than, I don't want to get too 
nitpicky here, but um, if, you're, if you're here tonight, some of you are, right? But one qualifier, some people are watching online, if you're watching online. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? You know, I think some Christians don't know. Now, that, that, that sometimes it's a process, especially if you're a, a younger Christian. And I don't know theologically if God gives you all the spiritual gifting you get at the moment of your conversion or if he can bring those gifts on you as you go through your spiritual walk. I would probably incline to the latter, that as you grow and mature, that the Spirit may say, now I can handle, I can give you another gift. Um, But I don't know, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but if you know what your spiritual gift is and you'd be willing to share that tonight, um, anybody here tonight that you have at least an idea of, Drew, Yes. Drew says he has the gift of teaching. And by the way, people say, how do I know what my gift is? I would argue, and I'm going to be really controversial here. People are not going to like what I'm about to say, but you know me, I say it anyway. And whatever. If you're not connected to, really closely connected to a local church, I don't know how you figure out your spiritual gift. Doesn't it make sense that if the reason they're given is to, to help the church fulfill its mission, that it's within the context of church that, and church leadership and others around you that can help you figure some of that out? Yeah. Um, Drew said teaching, and I, as somebody who, I, well, kind of, not kind of, I'm his pastor. I can tell you, you have the gift of teaching. I knew Pastor Danny shortly after he got saved. He didn't even know, but I knew really quickly uh, about anybody else, before I pick on Pastor Danny a little bit more, um, a- anybody else? Yeah, uh, Bill? Yes. 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 And since you're talking, let me jump on a, out on a ledge here and say Bill's talking and uh, his wife Connie. I think Connie, knowing you, I think you have the gift of servanthood. I think you love to serve and do things. No? She's looking at me like, no, I don't think so. I, yeah. Um, now, in, in all fairness, I've, I've only been pastoring her for a couple of years. So, you know, it, it, sometimes, it's, you say it takes, sometimes it can take a while. Because here's, here's the dilemma, and again, this is a, a, a Bible seminary discussion, but when we receive a spiritual gift when we get saved or as our walk grows, is that spiritual gift the same thing as a natural talent or a natural gift? In other words, do you think all human beings, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, do you believe that all human beings are gifted in some measure? I do. Special needs, you know, special needs kids. Sometimes I think we are the special needs people and special needs people are the ones that have real life figured out. Some, they're really gifted. Yeah, Jerry? Pardon me? Song leaders, gifted in music. Excellent. Did you say something, uh, Nick? Uh, uh, wisdom based on meditation of, of God's word. Um, anybody else? There are great studies to do on identifying a couple different lists that are in scripture. And, but do, do you ever hate the person that's got multiple gifts? There's a few people in this church that I struggle with because they're, you know, Lori Miller comes to mind. I don't know, you know, other than she wants, you know, Lori, Lori and I are going to get the, the t-shirts that say 
do I look like I want to talk to you? With a question mark. You know, that, uh, you know, her and I have some antisocial, you know, you have some, I have some of that, believe it or not. Um, but, you know, she does so many things. But one of the things that's difficult that I have found is sometimes God will take a natural talent that a person has already been gifted by their creation as a gift of God and being created in the image of God. And when they get saved, I find that God supercharges it. Same basic gift they've had, but now it's spirit energized and it goes to a different level and it goes to a more directed purpose being the, you know, the, the local church and in the greater measure, the Great Commission. Um, but has you ever known anybody that when they got saved, got a gift that was something very different than they ever had before? I have. And I'm picking on Pastor Danny because I appreciate him so much. But I remember, I'll never forget that conversation. It's one of, you know, there's certain conversations you remember. Um, and it was with Danny's mom and dad. And this was a few years after Danny had been saved. And we're sitting, standing in this hallway over here. And they were beginning to recognize that something happened to their son. And they liked this version of their son not they always loved their son, Randy, right? I know you did. But they liked this version of him a lot better. And they're talking to me about basically, you know, what in the world is God doing in the life of our kid? And I began to tell them, you know, already what I was seeing in him and that the Holy Spirit had given me an unusual freedom into seeing into his life a little bit. And I said, he has the gift of the prophet. He, he wants to know what truth is and he wants to say what this is truth. And I got to know what it is or drive me out of my mind if I don't know the answer to what truth is. And that just runs in him. And I said, and then he has to tell somebody about it. And I said, and then I said, and he's got this wonderful gift of, you know, he puts his thoughts down to the organs and I'm learning that he's going to be great administrative. Somebody, people have the gift of administration. Danny has a measure of that. And his mom and dad looked at me with this dumbfounded look and said, this kid never wanted to study a day in his life. He's what? He's organized? And we had, and I said, yeah. And we're all, three of us are looking at each other with this very inquisitive look and I'm going, are we talking about the same person? <laughs> and I remember walking away thinking, God gave him a gift. It's not Danny. It's this gift he gave him. And it's exciting, isn't it? So we are gifted, but Jesus was gifted without measure in a, in, a, in a different way. He was one with the Holy Spirit, whereas we are separate and distinct <laughs> from the Holy Spirit. He just indwells us, praise God. All right, verse 30. I, I've got to, I, I took too long on that, but y'all talked, which is great. Verse 35, the Father loveth the Son and hath given him all things into his hand. Again, we're back into the, this is the first of seven times in the Gospel of John that John makes sure he says uh, these particular words, that the Father loveth the Son. And, um, and records this fact. I think it's the importance of the, the relationship between God the Father and in this context, I think God the Father, God the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit, one being three persons, and in the community, the bond between the community of the triune God is love. Think about that. The bond between the community of the triune God is love. Now, when we get saved, we are baptized into Christ. We become one with Christ. We're baptized into the universal church. And the bond in the community of the church should be love. Separate and distinct individuals. Some folks have the gift of administration. 
Some have the gift of servanthood. Some have the gift, I think, if you want to know, what, Pastor, what's your gift? I think my gift is the gift of exhortation with a little dose of teaching thrown in there, but I'm an exhorter. You know, I like to, as you guys probably know, I get great. I'll, I'll text you guys, hey, how you doing? I hope you're doing great to do. Knock it out today. You know, that, that, that's, that's, my, that's one of my gifts. Um, and it's, I, I love it. Um, but we're different people, and it's all, it's all good. But the common thing that's got to hold us together is the command that Jesus gave there that after the Last Supper is this is a commandment that ye love one another. And um, the Bible says that God loved the, fa- the Son to the level of complete, perfect love, that all things belong to the Son. He was God, he was sovereign, and everything belongs in his hands, even the power over eternity, which I think is the point of our last verse tonight, which is a verse that probably most of us in here can quote. It's a tremendously powerful one, but I want you to see it tonight, maybe in the flow of the context of John chapter 3. The, the, the chapter ends with this wonderful verse, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I shouldn't maybe say it's a favorite verse because it's a sobering verse. Um, again, it's very black and white. You either have Christ or you do not. There, there is no in-between. Now, do not disguise this with your behavior. I'm not asking you if you've lived perfectly as a Christian because I know the answer to that question. Um, I have the same answer. But you've either had a time in your life where you set your seal on the witness of God or you have not. And the power of the Son over eternity is apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. There is no eternal life. There's only eternal death. And I know that's not... um, Accepted teaching today, people don't want, you know, and I understand that sometimes I, I wrestle with the love of God versus the holiness of God, and yet I can only take God as he's revealed himself to us through his word, and his word is very, 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 very clear that God is holy. And his holiness is not compatible with sin because sin is an abrogation of perfect love god is love and eternity is for people who have been made perfected in love and the only way to do that is for god to do it for us there is no hope for you and i to do it for you can't help enough little ladies across the street you can't mow your neighbor's lawn enough times to earn it there's nothing you can do because we are failed sinners who are liars and cheats and immoral we're guilty of all these things And the only way for us to become righteous, as Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, is to be made righteous. And that is done and was done by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he took upon him the wrath of man and the wrath of God. And we're going to study that when we get to that part of the life of Messiah. And he took my place and now offers me his righteousness in exchange for my sin and it's simply a matter of you're going to receive the testimony. That's what this whole passage is. What do you do with Jesus Christ? You know, it's not popular again to say what is said here, that the wrath of God is upon you. But when God says a tense testimony and God goes out there and God says, 
this is true, this is the way. And you look at God and say, I reject your truth and substitute my own. I'm just telling you, that's dangerous territory. That's called going to hell territory for the unbeliever. And you, you have the son or you don't. And when you don't, God's wrath is upon you. I think in the context here, he has clearly in mind the religious leaders came out and they fully rejected Jesus, John Baptist first, and then they reject Jesus and they were adversarial. And let's just say there's a couple times we're going to find that Jesus, his most fiery servant sermons were not directed at the poor and the immoral and the drunkards. His most fiery sermons, matter of fact, I think his only sermon, fiery sermons were directed at the religious people. Why? Because they rejected the witness of God. They rejected the witness of the forerunner and they rejected the witness of the Messiah. So tonight, if you're listening somehow, you found your way to this interesting or lack of interesting discussion tonight. If nothing else, I would ask, has there been a time in your life when you recognized that you needed the righteousness of Christ? Because I wouldn't drive a car. I wouldn't go to sleep. I wouldn't do anything until you know that things between you and a holy God are right. And the only way they're going to be right is if you put your trust in Jesus Christ and allow him to take the wrath of God for you and receive the gift of eternal life. Receive that gift of forgiveness and uh, do it now. So the chapter ends with a real bold statement there uh, and um, and we're going to see as we go on in John's uh, gospel and through the life of Messiah how the Pharisees continue to reject the witness of the Messiah. All right. Glad to tune in. We will... uh, See you on Sunday. Don't forget this Sunday is a very special Sunday. This Sunday is a pastor's panel, so we're going to have an interesting discussion. We've got lots of questions to come in. Matter of fact, I think we've got plenty of questions. I don't think we'll be able to cover all of them. We actually got a question from one of our young people. Um, uh, how old is Laura Lynn? How old is she? About eight. And I'm telling you, she asked a, a theologically profound question, and so we're going to Her question is not going into the fishbowl. The kids get first preference, you know, so her question, her question's getting answered. The rest of them, you know, we'll see what, you know, just like the Bible said in the book of Acts, we're going to draw lots out and see which ones get, uh, get, get answered, all right? Um, but uh, we'll see on Sunday. It's going to be a great service. So let me close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word tonight. Um, I thank the Lord you left um, your witness through the preservation of your word and uh, Lord, we can look back in many different ways and see the impact that you made on this entire humanity. And Lord, I pray that as we go out, as you've given us your spirit and you've sealed us with your spirit and you've gifted us with your spirit, that we could move forward the work of the local church, that we could work forward the Great Commission. God, the people that you bring into our lives this week, help us to show love, um, help us to uh, be servants and um, make a difference in someone's life and possibly, Lord, for eternity. Thank you for the attendance of your people tonight and dismiss us with your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, we'll see y'all. Uh, we don't have any announcements, right, Pastor Danny? Everything's good. We got a quiet weekend and all the pastoral staff said yes.